On this episode of Water Flying, we are talking to Robert Grant about flying the Turbo Beaver in Canada. You are listening to Water Flying, a show dedicated to all things seaplanes. Brought to you by the Seaplane Pilots Association. My name is Steve McCoy. I'm the executive director of the Seaplane Pilots Association, which is the world's largest nonprofit advocacy organization dedicated to the protection and promotion of the water flying community. Climb aboard! We're about to start today's episode. Well, welcome back to another episode of Water Flying. Today, I have one of my favorite authors that writes for Waterflying Magazine joining us, Mr. Robert Grant. We're going to talk about flying the Turbo Beaver in Canada. Robert's logged more than 20,000 hours of flight time, has over 5,100 hours on floats and over 3,000 hours in our topic of the day, the Turbo Beaver. Uh, he's also written over 2,500 articles. That's an amazing number of aviation articles, including countless, like I said, articles for Waterflying Magazine. He's even authored five different aviation books. So uh, I am just thrilled to have Robert join me today. Robert, uh, thanks for joining us on the Waterflying Podcast. It's a pleasure. <laughs> I tell you what, uh, I always look forward to your articles in the magazine. And uh, your article that we're talking about today, the Turbo Beaver in Canada, actually uh, is one of our uh, feature stories in the Jan Feb issue of Waterflying for 2023. And uh, it's nice to be able to correlate uh, one of our feature articles with the podcast. So uh, uh, thanks for, uh, number one, all your contributions to the magazine, but number two, even uh, going the next step forward and, and committing to the podcast. I'm standing by, ready. <laughs> Good. So uh, let's talk about how your journey in aviation began. When you have, you know, with over 20,000 hours of flight time spanning decades, uh, where did this all begin? Uh, where, how did it start? Well, my father had a private pilot license back in the 1940s. Wow. And he used to uh, drag me along to the seaplane bases and go flying. And quite frankly, I hated it. You know, it was messy and noisy and smelly, but that's what my father did. And eventually, uh, when I got into my, uh, in my teens, we wound up at an airport and we mysteriously wound up in an airplane on wheels and uh, went over to the Prince Edward Flying Club in Picton, Ontario. And I don't know how my dad engineered it, engineered it, but my name suddenly became uh, found on a piece of paper, and I started to learn to fly at Prince Edward Flying Club in Picton. Now, the odd thing is, my very first lesson, all my flying as a passenger had been on wheels. I'm sorry, on float aircraft. Uh-huh. And I remember packing out and trying to figure out what those funny little things were on the outside of the airplane, and they were the first time, first time I'd ever actually seen wheels on, on an airplane. Because you were so used to floats. Yeah, that's right, and I, I was not looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah, so that what's... Ground looked, 
Yeah, what's wrong with this airplane? Why why are there wheels on it? Where are the floats that belong there? Yeah, and the ground under it was pretty solid as far as I could see. No give. <laughs> well, that's funny. And and for those people that aren't familiar with the terrain in Ontario, I think there's as much water as there is land, if not more water. Well, there is in northern Ontario, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So it began, you know, at first you didn't like airplanes or aviation, and then uh, you got dragged into a, a seaplane flight when you were in your teens. Um, so obviously your your impression of flying kind of changed at some point there. Oh, it did. It kind of uh, went full tilt and went the other way, and everything I ever did after that was oriented towards uh, flying airplanes. Wow. Except uh, I did have a short period where I wanted to do something else with my life, but uh, airplanes took over, or shall I say they came back. Yeah. How did you go through the process of your, your student to commercial rating? And and then, you know, I, actually one of the things we haven't even talked about is is what was your first flying job? Well, the first flying job was a flight instructor in Oshawa, Ontario, and at the time, I was working in a General Motors factory assembling car seats. <laughs> and I would—I got the instructor rating while I was, you know, working in the factory with the money I was making there. And uh, I didn't like the factory, of course, but it paid well. And I got the instructor rating, and the flying club, it was the Oshawa Flying Club, offered me uh, <laughs> $150 a month and $2 an hour which is about one-tenth of what I was making at uh, the uh, assembly plant. But I was happier, much happier. And I, to this day, I just cannot believe that people pay me to fly airplanes. <laughs> it is a great gift for those of us who get to do it. Uh, that is for sure. And, uh, you know, there is no cure to this disease of, of having a love of aviation other than more more flying and potentially more money to allow you to fly more if you're flying your airplane and not someone else's. So um, I, I really appreciate that passion. And I think that's, again, evident in how prolific you've been in writing about your experiences in aviation. So today we're going to talk about this cover or this uh, feature story that we had in Water Flying, which was talking about the Turbo Beaver, uh, because it's a very legendary airplane. It has a cult-like status. And, um, you know, there's a lot to know about the airplane that I guess people that haven't had the wonderful experience that you've had uh, with the airplane should know. So uh, you uh, came into this, you you went from being a flight instructor. How did you end up working? So you, you ultimately ended up getting a gig with the Ontario Ministry of Natural Resources. Uh, how did how did that kind of happen, or what was the path for that? Well, after I, uh, I decided to go to university for some foolish reason, <laughs> and, what, and what that did is it left me with about four summers. And every summer, I made it a point to work in a different part of Canada. I, didn't, I never wanted to go back to the same job because I wanted to see the country. And luckily, some of those jobs were on floats, and it was wonderful adventure. And I was able to get 
you know, a, a teaching job eventually. I, I taught school for a couple of years. And then I went back to flying and I did a couple of more summer jobs only. And all the time I was putting applications into the Ontario Ministry of Natural Resources. I think it was, I put eight of them in. Wow. And I got rejected every damn time. <laughs> and finally, I did get hired. I've been quite happy with it, you know, for, for many years there. Yeah. Was the Turbo Beaver your first assignment, or were you flying other airplanes working up to the Turbo Beaver? Uh, at the Ministry of Natural Resources, the first airplane that I believe I checked out on was the single-engine Otter on float. Oh, wow. <laughs> and at the same time, well, at the same time, we uh, we were also flying the Turbo Beaver, so we were trained on one, and then you know a couple of days later, trained on the uh, Turbo Beaver. Wow, the otter! So you were flying. Uh, I'm going to imagine you were flying radio otters at that point. Oh yes, absolutely. Nobody knew what a turbine otter looked like in those days. Yeah. Oh, what a beast! The bark that that airplane has. Uh, is just amazing, and and unfortunately, they're becoming uh, pretty rare uh, in today's world. And I just uh, spent some time with a radio one that came out of a museum, uh, and and unfortunately, the the round engine is going to come off and be replaced with a turbine, and it's going to go into airline service. Uh, but literally, the airplane has been pulled out of a museum, and uh, they're going to put it back into service. Uh, but unfortunately. Uh, that round engine is coming off, and there's fewer and fewer of those piston otters around, which is both good and bad. It's good from a from an operator standpoint. The turbine uh, makes it a much better airplane for many reasons, which we'll talk about the same qualities that made the Turbo Beaver uh, potentially a better airplane for operators. But uh, missing that round engine and, and that bark of the round engine and even the flames coming out of the exhaust pipes at uh, sunset or evening with it. Well, I tell you, I I thoroughly enjoyed the Turbo Beaver, but I have to tell you that the single-engine Otter on float, and I had to fly it on wheel speed, the single-engine Otter on float was the greatest airplane I ever flew. I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. And you talk about the sound, not just the sound. I could feel the airplane, you know, the vibrations that go through there. I could smell it. It was a wonderful machine. Oh, that's great. I just had the opportunity. I have not flown a radio engine one, but I just did some left seat time and a turbine one. And uh like to thank Ken Moore for and John Gowie at Ken Moore and Todd Banks for and Greg Monroe and all the people that uh, kind of enabled me to go get some uh otter time. And the airplane, you know, was characteristic uh, de Havilland. Uh, the balance of the controls, the lightness of the controls, the responsiveness of the airplane, uh, it's just a joy to fly. It is. It certainly was. So let's... And uh, unusual, yeah. Yeah, go, Sorry, ahead. go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say the single otter had a very unusual takeoff attitude. That's what I remember most. Yeah. Uh, on with the radial engine, it would be nose down when you took off. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people have experienced that, and it's a little bit disconcerting both inside and outside the airplane when you see it uh, come off the water. Scared a few people. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about uh, Ontario Ministry of Natural Resources. So uh, unfortunately, uh, there were some, uh, while the beaver was starting to uh, develop quite a cult following very early, um, 
uh, and the beaver was produced from 1947 to 1967. But at the end of that uh, production run, they started manufacturing the turbo beaver, uh, which we can talk about, uh, you know, the qualities that, that made the turbo beaver arguably a better airplane. And I, I think that is debatable, uh, but uh, uh, why it was more attractive in some ways. Uh, and then the Ministry of Resources, how they acquired it. But let's talk about the turbo beaver and the beaver itself. You and I were discre- uh, discussing earlier that they only m- manufactured 1,657 beavers. And I think given kind of the cult-like following that that beavers have and and what a workhorse even today the beaver is in the canadian and alaskan bush uh, that it's amazing that they only produce 1657 and it it took them 20 years to do that so they were only producing an average of 82 aircraft a year Uh, i just find that simply amazing don't you yes i do they were a great airplane and still are no question. And there's a lot of them operating in Canada with piston engines yet. Yeah, yeah, and same with Alaska. And uh, so, and I, I think, you know, when you look at production runs like the Cessna 185 and the Cessna 180, I think the production runs were longer on the 180, and, and uh, the 185 came around and was in production until the mid-'80s. And I think they produced something like 6,500, 180, something something along those numbers and probably more like I forget the number of 185s, but I did the the statistics on it a while back and only half of the 180s currently exist that were produced and about two thirds of the 185s at most exist. And yet when I look out there in Alaska and Canada, it sure seems like a lot more of the beavers have survived, even though they're usually an older airplane and they're used in incredibly difficult uh, uh, roles, uh, very demanding roles that are also very uh, high stress on the aircraft and very hazardous in many cases. I had the opportunity to fly the piston beaver on what we call tundra tires or big wheels. Oh yeah. And that's when you found out that a beaver is so ultra fantastic. It would land in places you would never believe. And, uh, you know, you could hit boulders with it and it would still keep flying. It was an amazing, amazing airplane. Yeah, yeah. And I've enjoyed... I was going to say, it would often fly below... It would, it would sometimes fly with the freaking airspeed indicator still flickering around the zero mark <laughs> if you ran over a hill or something and jumped off the end of it. It actually did that. And then caught... Then it started to pick up. Yeah. Oh, it's such an amazing airplane. And so the original, the original uh, radial with the 985 had 450 horsepower. And then, uh, you know, as pilots are, more power is better. We just kind of had that discussion with Doug DeVry on one of the last uh, podcasts we did. You know, we always want more power as pilots. We always want more performance. And the original Beaver was amazing with 450 horsepower. But um, then we had this idea came about and they strapped a PT-6 to it, which ultimately ended up uh, producing 680 horsepower. Uh, So a 230 horsepower, almost, you know, double the power uh, or or 50% more power than the original airplane had. Yeah, 
Yeah, but we also carried more passengers. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, it, it did. So, you know, when you have more power, it just means you have more weight and volume to utilize. So, mm-hmm. um, the, the Turbo Beaver, uh, you know, I think the big selling features were, well, it, it has more power, so it's going to have more performance, but you probably traded off a lot of that performance because you ended up uh, weighting down the airplane more. Uh, but theoretically, they expected the airplane to have less maintenance. Um, there was a larger cabin, so they increased the size of the cabin 13% on the Turbo Beaver. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think the radio engines were known for gulping a little oil, uh, which was uh, less of an issue on the Turbo Beaver. And, and the fuel was easier to find because it was jet fuel. Uh, which is more available than 100LL, and that's a huge factor today. Uh, but uh, was that even was that a factor back then, even in when you were flying the airplane? Well, remember, I flew it for the government. I did not fly it for a civilian operator. Yeah. And the biggest problem with the Turbo Beaver when it came out was no commercial operator could afford them. Yeah. Only government could, or oil companies. I saw an oil company uh, uh, crack once. That was why it didn't take over right away in the civilian market. Yeah. And the other thing, too, is uh, at first, you couldn't get turbine fuel in most of the places that piston beavers, uh, sorry, turbine beavers went. You just couldn't get it. So it was the opposite. It was the opposite issue we face today where 100 LL was harder to come by back then because it was such an oddity, you couldn't get turbine fuel. Exactly, exactly. I've seen people burning, uh, oh, not turpentine, but, you know, very any, anything that's flammable <laughs> has gone into a turbo beaver. <laughs> Heating oil, whatever whatever was available. Exactly. Uh, I have used heating oil in turbo beavers. Now, we don't encourage that, of course, but uh, many times it would do the job just fine. No yeah. problem at all. Now, it wasn't filtered as well as, uh, you know, it could be. But nevertheless, it, we never had an engine. I never had an engine failure or a mechanical problem in a beaver. Yeah, uh, that's just amazing. And I, I love those stories because those are the stories of, of kind of flying that you don't hear as much anymore. Uh, you know, was there diesel available? Was there heating oil available? And if so, uh, it was a good alternate fuel for a turbine airplane. Mm-hmm. So well, twin otters, twin otters in the Arctic when they first started going into the Arctic, they would not expect fuel trucks, but they would call the local village uh, fuel oil truck or fuel oil at Caterpillar. Wow. <laughs> that's the way it worked. They work fine. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, and 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 great stuff. I mean, it it shows you how uh, robust the PT six is, and and you know, that it didn't have to be babied uh, with the fuel as, as much as well, and yet still was incredibly reliable. It certainly was. A great airplane. So they only well, made... Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I just going to say I miss it very much. Yeah, yeah. So they only produced 60 turbo beavers at the factory, and the turbo beaver was the name for the turbine beaver, and they literally did this at the end of the production run. So the production run that de Havilland did for the Beaver was 1947, so just post-war, uh, World War II, to 1967, the year that I was born. 
and the turbo beaver was produced from 65 to 67 and they only made 60 of them and as you mentioned uh it's it's hard to believe but they they cost a eye-watering $97,000 without floats and $36,000 of that cost was the PT6 and the propeller um it's amazing to think that $97,000 was an eye-watering amount of money and that and even more amazing is that you could get a propeller and a PT6 for $36,000 that was uh a third of the cost of the airplane was the 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 uh, PT6 and the propeller and um you were talking about uh, and what we should explore is that uh I think the Ministry of Natural Resources kind of saved the day for De Havilland on these because what they ultimately ended up with was an aircraft that was out of reach uh, from uh, an expense standpoint. Most of the uh, seaplane operators couldn't afford to operate or, or purchase a, uh, a Turbo Beaver, so the government agencies became the primary customer. They did save it, that's for sure. Otherwise, it would not have gone anywhere at that price. You could buy beavers, obviously, a lot cheaper. And there were other airplanes out there you could buy about a quarter of the cost, like Nordine Norseman and Simpsons and things like that. So I'm glad the government stepped in. Yeah. And literally, out of the 60 uh, produced, uh, 17 went to Ontario Ministry of Natural Resources. I think that's amazing. Almost 30% of the aircraft went just to the Ontario Ministry of Natural Resources. And I would imagine that government customers uh, probably made up at least another third of the production run. I would think so in other governments. I know that Manitoba had them. I'm not sure when, but I know they had them. And I can think of several oil companies that bought them as well. Yeah. So it was a luxury, luxury airplane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, state-of-the-art uh, at the time and, and kind of the ultra-performance airplane uh, that uh, was out there when it came to float planes, especially single-engine float planes. It, it, Turbo Beaver was and is a good airplane, but it, as you can imagine, it's not perfect. Uh, one of the problems we had with the guys tending to over-tent, over-tent the engine. And I never did it, but I know that it did happen within our organization. And if you overtemp a turbine engine, that's going to cost you big, big dollars to fix that that engine up. Oh yeah, get it back in service. That was that was a drawback. Yeah. And a lot of customers at first did not want to fly on them. They couldn't stand the smell of the turbine <laughs> fuel. I know that sounds weird, but anyway, I guess they got used to that after a while because now they're everywhere, right? Eh? Yeah, so the the smell of turbine airplanes, and I know this was a a case with the Kodiaks, and I don't think there's a turbine out, airplane out there that you don't get some sense of uh, smelling uh, the kerosene or the turbine exhaust uh, in the the cockpit, and I think that was one of the things that the turbo beavers were kind of synonymous for, especially in the beginning that people weren't used to, was that turbine smell in the cockpit. Yeah, it seems to me we had a 17-inch hatch in the back of that aircraft on the belly, you know, for photography and so on. Mm-hmm. And if I recall, the smell of the turbine, the exhaust gas, would actually come up through that when you while you were flying the airplane. Mm-hmm. 
And if you were taxiing downwind, you care, you were guaranteed to get a cockpit full of uh, exhaust fumes, no matter if your wind, your you know, your windows were closed or what. I think a lot of us dream of having that problem because we want to smell that uh, jet exhaust in our airplanes. <laughs> well, I got used to it. I, I missed it a lot. <laughs> I, I know. I never thought about. Yeah, I I know. I, you know, when I was in the military working on the C one thirties. Uh, probably one of the biggest things I miss was, you know, is, is the exhaust of, of the Allison 501s, uh, just smelling, uh, those turbines. Uh, it, it just kind of is one of those smells that it deeply imprints on you and sometimes you can't get rid of it. Uh, but, um, it's one of the endearing qualities about turbine, you know, propeller airplanes is, is that smell. And, uh, yeah. I, I, it's it's actually a romantic smell for me. <laughs> well, you think about that smell that you took it with you wherever you went. Yeah, it, it it stayed on your clothes and on your body and in your hair and everything else. So, yeah. But uh, well, let's talk about uh, the Turbo Beavers. So uh, they had an empty weight of around thirty five hundred pounds, so a ton, a little over a ton and a half. Um, I think the ones you were flying at the time, the prolific float, probably the only float that was available was the Edo 4930s, um, which gave it a gross weight of, of 5,370 pounds, uh, the way you flew it. Is that about right? So uh, pretty substantial it's, airplane. It's yeah. Yeah, that's um, – yeah. yeah. So – And uh, we carried more – I think – I can't remember how many seats we had back there, but we had we had a couple more seats at least than the Piston Beaver. Mm-hmm. So what was the uh, what was the aircraft used for? So, you know, the largest operator was the Ministry of Natural Resources. You got employed by them, I think, originally on a temporary or kind of a evaluation uh, basis where you were needing to prove yourself. But what were some of the uh, missions uh, for the aircraft? Well, one of the jobs, one of the many jobs was uh – Flying uh, great out, doing great owl studies, you know, uh, great gray owls. Mm-hmm. And evidently, these owls were uh, captured when they were young and they put these radio collars on them. And we would sit up there at 10,000 feet and track them all over the province of Ontario. And, you know, that sounds kind of romantic and fun, but you did that at 10,000 feet and you're long enough up there that you always came down with a headache. And, uh, you couldn't talk to the guy beside you who's got a special headset on and a special antennas on the on the wing struts. So it was kind of lonely. <laughs> I didn't enjoy that too much. But it, it, I felt like I was accomplishing something anyway. I don't know what we did for the great gray eagle population, but it it was exciting to do in many ways. Many ways. Yeah. A lot of a lot of territory cover. Well, that's kind of counterintuitive. I don't think people uh, envision. Uh, beavers operating at 10,000 feet, just kind of loitering around. And uh, there again, you're carrying a biologist uh, that's tracking these birds. And uh, they're, they're trying to hone in on these collars and, and get uh, acquisition data for the location. So they're very heavily concentrating. Uh, you know, you just happen to be in the airplane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we did a lot of animal studies as well. We you know, we did animal, uh, pardon me, moose surveys, caribou surveys. And the oddest one I think we had to do was a beaver survey. 
I mean, the, you know, the little animal, not the aircraft. Yeah, the beaver, the beaver, the, the terrestrial animal. Yes, and that was not fun. They they had it uh, so low, as low as we could possibly get with a turtle beaver, uh, flying down little creeks and rivers and stuff like that. And they were looking for for uh, beds of uh, trees. You know, the, the beavers cut down and they store them underwater. Mm-hmm. And they live on those for the winter. And our job was to pick those out from the air at low levels. And every time we ever did that trip, there was always somebody that came back to Ersnick because it's twisting, turning up and down, jumping around rocks and things like that. It, it was a lot of fun. And you sure kept awake, but I felt sorry for the passengers. Yeah, for a pilot, that's kind of flying down in the trees along, you know, conf- following along the terrain and weaving your way around these streams and rivers and lakes and that's kind of our dream come true but uh riding in the back uh, you know i know from reading the stories uh, of of that you've recounted uh you better have had a full complement of uh air sickness bags oh yes yes <laughs> every once in a while you'd run out of out of bags and you have to use the same bag more than once i was not that one <laughs> the guys that say, one guy was so ashamed that he was getting sick. Uh, he left his bag under the seat, which is very annoying to the guy flying the airplane at the end of the day. That has to clean so, it up and <laughs> get rid of it. Well, didn't clean that one up, but I got rid of it. I, I mailed that to him. He got in his mailbox in a couple of days, so <laughs> he didn't do that again. So, uh, note uh, note to uh, passengers and researchers that fly with bush pilots: uh, do not leave your full air sickness bags in the airplane, or uh, they will come back to you. <laughs> well, in this case, it did. It did. There was a lot of like that, but moose studies were quite interesting. We were down low in the this is the winter time, mind you. We were down low, and uh, I think it was three hundred feet or something like that, looking for moose. Now, another oddball one we did was an eagle survey, sorry, an osprey survey, which was on floats, of course. And uh, that was really exciting. We would find these ospreys in, with a biologist in the airplane, and we'd circle and circle and circle while they took pictures. And they never flew. They always sat on the tree and never left their nest. Yeah. Well, I think that's important to mention because, you know, we just had a fight in Lake Winnipesaukee in New Hampshire, and we're constantly faced. Uh, we've even had uh, uh, challenges here in Florida where uh, we're challenged with the impact of seaplanes on uh, avian, uh, the avian population, the bird population. And um, we just we just always kind of, when you're an insider, you you understand that seaplanes have been one of the most useful tools for helping study birds and tracking their migrations and doing their counts. And um, as we did in, in Lake Winnipesaukee, you know, we showed uh, that uh, uh, the turbine beaver that U.S. Uh, Fish and Wildlife flew, uh, which was a very loud airplane. It was an Allison-powered airplane. And it's surrounded by loons. I've got a wonderful picture of it surrounded by loons on the lake. So I don't think, uh, you know, to the uninitiated, uh, we get a lot of pushback about the impact on birds with seaplanes. And yet seaplanes have been one of the greatest stewards of helping us track and protect and maintain the populations of birds. Yeah. We had an assignment uh, quite some time ago where we would have to go to an island on Lake of the Woods very large lake, and there was a cormorant 
sorry, there was a white a white pelican. There were actually pelicans living on that lake on an island out there. And our job was to survey those periodically. And it was that was very interesting. The only trouble is we, we couldn't land in Kalka, but we had to circle and circle and circle while the uh, biologists counted them. Very interesting stuff. Yeah, and we have seaplanes on my lake every day. And this time of the year, in the spring, uh, we get to enjoy. We have a, a huge flocks of white pelicans. Oddly enough, you mentioned white pelicans. And, you know, the only, you'll have, I don't know, 150 white pelicans on our lake. And then, of course, there's always about three or 400 black comorants uh, that follow the yeah. pelicans wherever they go. And uh, we have seaplanes on our lake every day. <laughs> Yeah, they, the same island had cormorants as well. Yeah, it seems like wherever the pelicans go, the cormorants follow. Yeah, I learned a lot about birds anyway. It was pretty interesting. Yeah, that's great stuff. Well, I know one of the more interesting and, and probably more uh, enjoyable, <laughs> I don't know how to say this, uh, memories you had was uh, you would you would fly the pellet pickers. And to someone who doesn't know what a pellet picker is, uh, maybe you can describe uh, some of the missions you did flying professional pellet pickers. Well, I'm going to use a word on your podcast, but that's what we call, we call them the shit pickers. <laughs> the, job, the name of the job was to fly these, they were almost always young women, and they were hired for the summer, and we would fly them out early in the morning, drop them off, and come back and get them in uh, late afternoon, just before dark. And they would start out looking glamorous, you know, with their perfume and their hair in the right place and so on. But by the time you pick them up, they've been going through the bush all day looking for deer pellets. So that would be nicer, call them deer pellets, <laughs> or uh, deer population. They'd be going through the bush all day long, and uh, we'd rendezvous, pick them up, and at the end of the day, my God, it was not, it was like there were four different young women or young people. <laughs> Smell was terrific. They'd been perspiring all day long. And uh, this is country where there are low hanging uh, balsam and poplar and things like that. They're, they're all torn, you know, their hair is all torn out and so on. But uh, it was enjoyable. They were always happy with what they were doing and glad to be there. A different kind of person. Because they appreciated the North, even though they were from, most of them were from Southern Ontario. And they just really enjoyed that job. And uh, for the summer, anyway. It was yeah. nice to fly them around. Well, it's amazing. Again, uh, you think, uh, I know that you, you enjoyed flying these young women uh, around. Uh, and yet their job was literally to pick up and examine and count uh, deer pellets and moose pellets and, or, moose nuggets and uh again affectionately be known as as the pellet pickers or the shit pickers and uh what's amazing is it wasn't these burly guys you know that i you would kind of imagine would have this job but rather good-looking women i think <laughs> is what your experience yeah. was yeah yeah it was great i did enjoy that now the other thing too is uh in that particular part of the province of ontario at that time uh, there were an awful lot of wood picks, and I don't know if you have those down where you live, but they're for horrible things. Mm -hmm. And they would come back infected with these wood picks, mm -hmm. just horrible things. Yeah, and they didn't seem to mind; they just picked them off. And uh, unfortunately, I caught one of them putting them down the back of my neck one time. 
and uh, that never happened again. I can tell you. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah uh, the control column hard back to the stomach. The airplane went straight up and came back around straight down, and they never did that again. <laughs> <laughs> I've picked more than my share of ticks off with uh, either a cigarette or a, a burning ma- match or something like that, burning burning them off. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, been through that deer yeah, tick, deer ticks. Yeah, yeah, and they're they're disease prone. You know, you can get a disease from those quite easily. Yeah, absolutely. So. Uh, you were flying these bird study missions, these animal study missions, but there were also a lot of other things you did. So uh, <laughs> some of them more glamorous and some of them less glamorous. So uh, you you mentioned the camera uh, hole in the back of the beaver. So you did a lot of uh, camera platform work to assess timber inventories. Uh, so I'm sure that was kind of a, an arduous mission as well because you're just flying over grids taking photos. Actually, I didn't mind that very much because I, I, did all, I was so close to my base that I could run right down to the red light or the orange light, you know, for low fuel. Yeah. And I, I just, I just liked being up there. It was probably smooth air as well. Yeah. It's kind of tired of turbulence at low levels. No, I didn't mind that. And you flew the same guys all the time, and you got to know them very well. And I'm, I'm still friends with a lot of them. Good, good. Uh, you also had the the less than glamorous, probably mission of uh, hauling garbage out of the parks uh, because well, it was the only yeah, way to get it out. Yeah, a lot of that came out of the park. But what would happen is when we had big forest fire projects, uh, they would you know they'd have all kinds of camps set up in the bush tents and so on, and we'd be flying this that garbage out. Okay, and, for uh, the firefighters, that's something that. Uh, probably isn't thought about by people as much. Well, we weren't allowed, they weren't allowed to leave any garbage in there. Everything had to be blown out. And that meant, you know, pork chops, you know, things like that. <laughs> and uh, you can imagine what those bags would look like and smell like after they'd been in the air. I was sitting on the, sorry, sitting on the side of the shoreline for a few days before I could get in there and pick them up. Yeah. Off, off, and they often slipped. And nice little creatures are crawling around the back of the airplane all all during your trip. It's not much fun. Oh. None of the glass that I anticipated when I finally went north. Mm. Well, I'm I'm sure about then you start enjoying that uh, kerosene burner smell uh, because it it did a little bit to probably uh, cover up what was in the back of the airplane. Yes, yes. <laughs> now we had a lot. We had a lot of smells in that business. I think I mentioned. <laughs> story about uh, the, the uh, dead fish that we had to pull out of the bottom of a lake with a conservation officer. That, didn't, that, that was a terrible thing, but that flying with conservation officers, game wardens, you call them, uh, you got to see a lot of things. And one of the things that upset me was you often were called upon to check the remains of a moose that had been poached. You had a you know, moose poachers had been in there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, oh, boy, we often had to take out pieces of the moose that had been lying there for a week or so. And that is a smell like you've never heard. <laughs> now, sometimes we would never smell the meat. Now, sometimes we would get a fresh moose that uh, they killed and they'd buggered off somewhere before the uh, conservation officers intercept them. 
And you put that in the aircraft because that meat would be going to a senior citizen's home or something like that. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem with that is the blood of the moose would run all over the floor and it would get in the cracks and the crevices and you'd clean it out. But you never, ever got that moose blood. Never got it all out. No, never got no, it all out. It, it was corrosive. It was corrosive stuff. But, uh, and, but I still remember the smell of that and the boost, the boost you know, the, everything else. Wow. Oh. And, and again, the, the fact that you literally, it was corrosive, uh, which is pretty amazing. Uh, be, so um, that, that's great stuff. You also had a lot of medical mi- missions. I mean, you had all kinds of different patients and victims and, and other things. Talk, talk about some of, you know, the missions there. I mean, I, I guess one of the things that really stands out to me as we go on and on here about all the different missions that you flew and uh, you were just kind of the Swiss Army knife. The airplane and the pilots were really the Swiss Army knife of the Ministry of Natural Resources because if there was a mission or something that needed to be done, I mean, you guys did it. And, and it was so incredibly diverse, that the things that you did. But talk about the medical missions, I mean, because there were all kinds of different ones. Well, I know that in uh, when I started with Minister Natural Resources, I had never seen a dead body. Uh, now, at this age I am now, I've seen many. But at that time, I had never seen a dead body. And one of my first assignments uh, was to go to Quetico Provincial, not Quetico, yeah, Boundary Waters Provincial Park, which is on the edge of, uh, going between Minnesota and Ontario. And I had to pick up a drowning victim. And unfortunately, they didn't have a body bag. They covered him with a blanket. And of course, the blanket fell off as soon as they got in the airplane. Mm. But what was upsetting was the man's wife and his young daughter, a daughter of 10 years old, were sitting on the dock with the body under the blanket. And as I pulled up there, I didn't realize that the man was under the blanket. Mm. And uh, I was as cheerful as I could be. And how are you today? And I go, oh, my God. I felt so sorry for that lady and her young daughter with their husband and father lying in the dock like that. And as soon as we got in the airplane, of course, the blanket fell off. And uh, the coroner met me uh, about an hour later at our destination. That was very sad. Yeah. Yeah, if you haven't had to deal with that. Uh, and again, just one of, that's one of those moments that keep you up at night afterwards going, oh, God, I wish I I, I would have handled that differently, and, and it was totally innocent. You had no idea uh, that her husband was there uh, on the dock. You guys also, though, I mean, it was there were chainsaw victims, heart attacks, fish hook incidents, <laughs> all kinds of stuff. Well, the fish hook incident is the one that really stands out in my mind. We often took in, this is in the summer on floats, they were almost always young women. I don't know why that is, but they all—they happened to be young women. And they would go in in pairs, and they would be in the bush for about two weeks, 10 days to two weeks with a canoe or a boat. And their job was to survey the lake. They were lake survey girls. And we wouldn't see them for, you know, for 10 to 12 days. And uh, I got a call one day to go and pick up two of them, and I had only taken them in about four or five days before. And away I went, and I picked them up, and they're standing on the shoreline, 
waiting for me, and they've got their tent all bundled up and their food, everything's ready, and we tied the boat on the on the uh, side of the aircraft. And I couldn't figure out why I was there. I didn't see any injury. They weren't sick, you know, and they weren't uh, they hadn't gone off the deep end. And as we're flying along, I looked over at the young girl that was on my right, and geez, she had a fish hook in her hand, literally in her hand deep, deep into her hand. And all the time we were loading that airplane, it must have really, really hurt. But I never heard a whipper or a whining or anything like that. To me, they were, you know, tough northern girls. <laughs> wow. I'm that... sure you and I would be dancing around if we got a fish hook in our hand. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, uh, when you look at the role that these women have played in the bush, um, and the way they've handled situations, it, it really is a huge testament to how hardy, uh, women are and how hardy they've been over history dealing with these things. Uh, because I, I can tell you from experience, there are a few things less painful than a foot fish hook stuck in your hand or in a finger. Um, yeah. and then you have the, you know, the conundrum of how you're getting it out. Uh, with the barb on it. So, um, yeah, it's a, a very helpless uh, feeling. So, <laughs> um, so I think one of the things that uh, is also interesting to talk about is the Beavers got uh, involved in firefighting missions. And, and as far as I know, and I'm sure we'll have some feedback on this from someone, but uh, I think Beavers were among the very first water scoopers and uh, all of the, was it all of the Ministry of Natural Resources here, uh, beavers were converted to be uh, water bombers? Well, as far as I know, all the turbo beavers were converted. Uh-huh. And previous to them, we had piston beavers, and they carried external tanks on the floats or under the belly. Yeah. They... And then when the, uh, the floats were modified, it was done by a guy in Toronto. The idea came from a man in Toronto came, uh, called Knox Henshaw who designed the system, the hydraulic system, and the water was in the floats, and we would land with the probes down, what we called probes, never call them scoops, and it would take about 12 seconds or so to fill up 140 gallons of water. Now, a lot of people say that, well, gee, that's not very much water, you know, you can't put out a forest fire with that. But the name of the game was to get there fast. Mm-hmm. Turbo Beaver was faster than most water bombers at that time. And the single otter was the other one. Mm-hmm. And uh, if we got there fast enough, we could do a lot. And, you know, even though it was just a small amount. And uh, I often saw them do just that. You know, they stopped the fire and allowed a fire crew time to get in there to take care of the rest of the fire. Well, it comes down to suppression. So what you wanted to do is control the spread. And if you take 140 gallons and atomize it in the drop, uh, it actually has a huge effect in suppression. Well, one of the problems with it was you didn't want to drop very high, mm-hmm. or it would atomize. Mm-hmm. No, you don't want to. You don't want a vapor. You want a solid slap of water. Mm-hmm. And of course, we would have to drop as low as we possibly could, and it worked when you were down low. Now, if you were going to drop it from high. It came out as a, it came down, it, some of it never reached the ground. Yeah, it just became a mist. Yeah. Yes. So. Now, having said that. Uh-huh. Go ahead. Having said that, it was, it was very handy for something else. 
occasionally you'd be flying along in the airplane and a ground crew would call you, timber surveyors or somebody like that. And, you know, it was a small organization. And they would want to be cooled off on a hot summer. <laughs> and that wasn't a big deal. You know, you'd land in a lake, pick up a load of water, takes about 12 seconds, and fly over to these people and drop it, drop it high enough that it doesn't hurt them. Yeah. And they would be cooled off. They'd love that. Oh, that's great. Yeah, because I don't know if people realize how hot it gets in the in the bush in Canada in the summer. Uh, it can be incredibly hot. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And these, some of these people, like timber cruisers and uh, pellet pickers, they walk all day long. Yeah. And they get pretty hot. So I think it's amazing that, you know, you take the early development of – uh, modifying the floats on, uh, I think there were about seven, like you said, 140 gallons, 70 gallons per side. So, uh, uh, per float, 70 gallons. And then you look at what they're doing with the advent of the fire boss today, still single engine turbine airplane, but now they're picking up 840 gallons. And I know they're looking to up that to a thousand gallons, uh, I think uh-huh. in the near future, but 840 gallons, so 700 more gallons, and you think about the weight, um, and if you've ever been exposed to a fire boss, the size of the fire boss is incredibly uh, uh, impressive and uh, uh, almost, uh, it, it's very humbling. And to think that this is a single engine firefighter, but I think the beavers were really the beginning of the whole fire bombing uh, advent of technology. And uh, it's interesting to see, I think, the state of Minnesota still is flying uh, water bombing beavers in their fleet, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yes, they are. And they were doing that when I was with the ministry. I happened to have a visit over there one day and spent the day. And yeah, they, they had, their technology was quite outdated compared to what we had in the MNR. But nevertheless, they were doing a fine job. And they were also a real, a real keen bunch at that. So I think it was for <laughs> service there. Yeah. Anyway, in, in Minnesota, yeah. Real with the with the open top uh, uh, kind of containers sitting on top of the floats. Exactly. Yeah. And they just and roll over. They they would just roll over yeah. to dump them. Yep. Roll over tanks. Yep. Yeah. Amazing. And I think Bemidji is uh, where they were based. Uh, one of the places where they were based. Yeah, that's. I believe so. I was in there with the Turbo Beaver. Oh, great stuff. And I think one of the things that's interesting is you guys would do pickup runs at 90 miles an hour. It would only take 12 seconds to put 140 gallons in, but the bombing run was literally just a couple of knots above that uh, for for the drop speed. Yeah, I think it was. It's been a long time since I did that, but I know the drop speed was not as low as we would have liked it. But the thing is, when you hit the button, it was out in less than a second. So mm-hmm. it came out pretty compact, and then, of course, then it would vaporize. So if you, you hit the button, it's out in less than a second, and if you're low enough, you can do some damage on the fire with it. Yeah, and I think they had some the oval doors. Did you know that at one time they were considering putting water bombing floats on Cessna 180? Wow. You can imagine what kind of load that was. Yeah. But was the plan at one time. I don't think it came off. Wow. And talk about the glassy water and rough water operations doing these uh, pickups because um, they were both very uh, uh, 
they would get your attention, I would say, in both cases. Well, landing in the rough water was not a problem because, you know, you didn't pitch forward or anything like that. But if you landed glassy water with takeoff flaps, if I recall, you landed in glassy water with takeoff flaps with the probes down, it would scare it scared the living shit out of me the first <laughs> time I couple of times I did that. And finally somebody told me that you don't use that much flap when it's glassy water and everything was okay. But when it touched it when we did that, it would be full forward, the nose went full forward and I had the control column hard back and it knows it's still going down. And as I say, I learned from that. But it was kind of frightening kind of frightening. Yeah, well, you get a tucking tendency on glassy water anyway with floats, and add the yeah. probes, uh, the probes to that, and uh, yeah, it was a, a pretty. From what I hear, it was a very aggravated uh, nose down tendency, and you n- literally ran out of ability to control it. Mm-hmm. Oh, you did, you did. Wow. And one of the problems too with the turbo beaver, if you run all the fuel, it seems to me if you leave your front fuel tank last, that aircraft will pitch forward quite a bit if the back tanks are empty when you land, whether you're water bombing or any kind of, any kind of flying. Yeah. But the aim of the game is to uh, empty the rear tank or the front tank first. Yeah, that, that CG, just having that weight forward makes all the difference in the world. I it, think. Does. it does. So I landed one on skis once. Um, I, I had left the front full and I was landing on a lake, and I went to pull back, and it didn't pull back. It went bang, and it landed. I was Everything was okay. It worked out because it's a beaver. But I realized then that, by God, you do not carry, you know, a full front tank in this airplane anytime alone without the others, with the others. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, something to really... That, uh... that happened, yeah, if that happened on water, it could have been a, a kind of a problem. Yeah, I think most people think about takeoff CG issues. Um, what I think is good about this discussion is talking about the importance of landing CG issues. Yeah, that would be in this case, absolutely. Yeah, and I think before we get off of firefighting, one of the things that you got exposed to that I've kind of been exposed to over the years and I guess kind of been surprised about or uh, if you haven't been exposed to the firefighting community for protecting force, the interagency politics of firefighting uh, can be pretty interesting because despite these agencies having a stated mission and these organizations having a stated mission of protecting forest, uh, there's a lot of underlying current of, you know, kind of, I think, job preservation of letting fires kind of grow uh, before you control them. Yeah, it's hard for me to speak to that, Steve, but uh, I did see things that were very upsetting. Uh, for one of one of the things that we always joked about, but really wasn't funny, they uh, they got rid of the single otters. We had 17 of those. Mm-hmm. They got rid of the single otters because they weren't costing enough to operate. <laughs> And what they did is they brought in very, very expensive helicopters, like about 10 times the cost. So that kind of was a very clear message for us. Yeah. Yeah, and we've seen the same thing. Uh, you know, the again, the fire boss uh, has not been allowed in California 
uh, because it's a single-engine firefighting aircraft, and they've paraded around 747s and MD-11s and and other very large aircraft that have very long turn times, uh, which doesn't necessarily uh, lend itself to the mission of controlling the fire before it gets out of control. And yet we've seen states like California prevent uh, very effective airplanes like the Fire Boss from coming in and being able to do very high uh, drop and return rates where they can fight a fire very effectively. They can suppress a fire before it gets out of control because they can do so many uh, drops in, in an hour or in a given period of time that they, you know, in my estimation, are more effective than a 747 that has to go back, land, reset, be reloaded on land instead of doing a water pickup, fly back to the site, drop the water in the turnaround time. I mean, you get, you know, one drop per hour versus maybe 17 drops with a a fire boss if there's water nearby. So a lot of politics in the uh, forest uh, firefighting missions um, that are interesting. And I, again, still see these playing out today with the advent of these 747s and MD-11s, which get paraded around and they may be used uh, strategically to great effect, but to prevent uh, airplanes like the Fireboss from coming in is just, um, I know, frustrating to many of us. Well, I'm hoping they put a 747 on floats. Soon. <laughs> there you go. So I know uh, you could uh, come in and, you know, when you were operating, one of the unique things about flying turbine airplanes is the ability to uh, do some pretty steep descents down terrain. Uh, How would you uh, accomplish that? And and what were some of the the, maybe the hazards of doing stuff like that? Well, it it came in very handy if you had to land short on a windy day, for example, and you don't want to taxi. So that's when you would do that. Or sometimes you would have a short lake and you'd want to get down as quickly as you possibly could. So you would come over the top of the hill at minimum speed, tuck the nose down, and it really, I don't think it was approved, but you would bring the power lever back into what we called beta. Mm-hmm. And the airplane just, boy, it would come down at a very steep angle. It would fall out of the sky. The only trouble with that you really had to watch it when you got down to the water and make sure you were out of beta or it was game over. You were going to do some serious damage. Now, I don't know if my fellow pilots did that. I suspect they did. But uh, none of us broke an airplane that way. But it was exciting. It was exciting. And it was obviously a funny thing. It was very noisy, very noisy. And on one occasion, I got down on a lake and, a guy came over in a boat. He must, the boat must have, yeah, I guess he saw me coming about, coming down the hill about five, I don't know, about half a mile away. And he came all the way over in the boat to see if I could crash because he heard the noise and the angle was such and he couldn't see the airplane touch the water. He thought we'd had an accident. You know, it, it looked pretty dramatic. Yeah. Which I thought was pretty good of the guy to come all the way over there and see if we were okay. And we were, we were just fine. Yeah, well, anyone that's heard of King Air or any turbine airplane land and go into beta, uh, the the I guess the wash, uh, the the rush of of going into beta has a very unique sound. And I know Carter, 
mentioned that he thought it was his favorite new sound when we were flying the otter and uh but it does have a very uh specific sound that everyone has heard i'm sure that's listening to the podcast but coming down on approach and hearing that would be uh, a, a very odd thing to hear yeah we also had a lever on the uh, terrible beaver that was, I think they call it, we called it approach idle. Approach idle. And it would keep the engine RPM up much faster than normal. I don't know, maybe 70% or something like that. And in other words, the engine was pulled up and you were hearing that. That's the noise you were hearing. Mm-hmm. Wow. And uh, I think one of the things that you mentioned uh, in the article uh, that really resonates is uh, making sure that the doors were latched because if you didn't, uh, uh, it created uh, quite a spectacle. Yeah, it's very embarrassing when that happens. And the other problem with that is once you decide, oh, geez, you know, when you push the power lever forward, the doors slam shut on your elbow every time. <laughs> and that, that really hurts. So. So that my arm broke one time doing that, but it didn't. Oh God! So one of the things that we're talking about here is going into beta without the doors latched. Uh, they would slam forward against the fuselage, and and I guess one of the the things that would happen is you would ultimately have uh, the door pockets full of paper and all kinds of stuff, and and there would just be this cloud of debris, confetti uh, from the propeller that would come out of these doors when you did that. So not only were the doors slamming open, but all the debris that was in the, the pockets would be coming out. Yeah, it really helped. This was before GPS days when our map went out and we, uh, we didn't have anything to navigate with. <laughs> yeah, so now you have nothing to get home with. Yeah, yeah. Ah, uh, great stuff. Well, it, there's so much to talk about, and I would encourage, again... Uh, one of the great uh, things about being a member of the Seaplane Pilots Association is then you get to read articles uh, like Robert's article in the current issue, uh, talking about uh, this in a lot more detail than we've been able to do today. And and Bob's written many articles for us over the years uh, that are highly enjoyable, very educational. So, uh, again, if you've enjoyed this podcast and you're not a member of the Seaplane Pilots Association, please join because you can hear a lot more of Robert's stories. And what I want to kind of cover now before we we wrap things up is uh, what was your most challenging mission or flight with the ministry in these turbo beavers? Does one stick out? Actually, yeah, it does. I had to go from Kenora to Pickle Lake. That's about an hour and a half or something, I think, with a turbo beer to do, to pick up two guys on a water survey program. And I was going to be with them for about a week to 10 days. And I pulled into the dock and <laughs> these two guys are standing there with a three quarter ton truck. And it is absolutely overflowing with their freight. And they thought I was going to be able to carry all that freight. And they were very upset, but I told them that, I'm sorry, you're going to have to leave a lot of this stuff behind because we can't carry it. Very upset. So that set the tone. And, oh, boy, the whole tone was like that. And everywhere I went, it was the last guy's story. The last guy did this. The last guy did that. Mm -hmm. And it got very, very annoying. I can tell you that. 
Yeah. And, uh, oh, it was, I remember I asked, we were supposed to rendezvous with a fuel drum that the helicopter had dropped off. And I couldn't see the drum. And I'm taxiing to shore, and I knew this guy had been into that lake before as a passenger. And I asked him, have you seen any rocks around here? And he said, no, no, nothing at all, nothing at all. Very snotty. And about two seconds later, bang, he hit a rock. Mm. It was just a little bit missed at that. And these two guys were real clowns, landed on a lake, uh, sorry, on a river, and just south of Hudson's Bay. This is in the Lake Paul. We shouldn't have been there with a float airplane. And one guy got out and he kicked my float pump out. And there went my float pump down the river towards Hudson Bay. So I couldn't pump my floats. But the worst part was I had to get in the water and freeze myself to death to get to shore. And I would get to shore and tie up and I would be soaked to the waist. And the first day that I did that, I looked and they got out of the airplane and they're both wearing hip waders. <laughs> they never <laughs> offered me any hip waders. <laughs> nice time. <laughs> and they, they left very angry. And as I say, lots of luck. I last guy stories. It was not a fun trip. Yeah. Not um, a fun trip at all. So uh, take care um, of your crew. Take care of your crew. That's for sure. Because um, uh, the next flight, uh, you'll remember. <laughs> And so um, what have we forgotten to talk about, Bob, about flying the turbo beaver in the Canadian bush uh, that we really don't want to leave this podcast without sharing with the audience? Uh, What what experience should we make sure that we impart on the audience before we uh, finish up? Well, you know, something that comes to mind is right back to the piston beaver where I work. In northwestern Ontario, there were five beaver crashes that summer. I'm not kidding you. Five beaver crashes, all on float. Wow. And the reason it was happening is because people were forgetting that the beaver is an airplane. Now, the same thing applies to the turbo beaver. When you do a steep turn in low level with a piston beaver and with a turbo beaver, it's very, very close to the stall. And as I say, people do this. It's why they fly so well. You get down there and you forget you're flying an airplane. Mm-hmm. And you forget about that, that bank angle and the fact that even though it's got that great wing out there, it will stall. Mm-hmm. And one of my jobs was to carry out a couple of guys that had done just that. And uh, it, it scared me when I picked them up because I saw what happened to them and what they looked like. And I've passed that on about turbo beavers and piston beavers ever since. Mm-hmm. Don't forget the frickin' airplane. Yeah, they, they will stop. They will drop a wing, and they roll very quickly when that happens. And uh, well, well, usually what happens is they're in a steep turn mm-hmm. at low level. They're in the turn, and they don't have the power on, or mm-hmm. at least much power. And then it stops. Yeah. If you saw it straight ahead, you know it's a gentle stall. We all know. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. In the turns, they they will. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's basic aerodynamics. You know, the the inside wing is yeah. is flying slower than the outside wing, and when you have more lift on the outside wing, it's going to want to go over uh, when that inside wing stalls. And yeah, uh, was, go ahead. No, I was going to say that was a terrible summer for piston beavers, but 
fortunately, all our Turbo Beaver pilots have a lot of experience. Mm-hmm. And we do a lot. We did a lot of low flying, a lot for moose survey and things like that and all that animal survey. But we never had an airplane fall out of the sky because, mm-hmm. you know, we, we had the experience behind. Yeah. Don't get complacent. I mean, I think that's one of the biggest things is you can yeah, never yeah. get too comfortable with what you're doing uh, because there are certain unalienable truths that will always uh, come uh, into play with flying an aircraft. There are there are you know brick walls that you could not uh, challenge with your airspeed and with your operational techniques. And if you do, uh, there is a very predictable outcome every time. Well, Steve, I know what you mean by complacency. Let me give you an example. I spent a summer as park pilot in Quetico Provincial Park with the Turbo Beaver, and I flew every day, and I got to know that airplane extremely well. Now, I came back one day from a trip, and I was at the dock, and I suddenly realized, Jesus, I did not remember landing that airplane. I don't remember putting flaps down. I don't remember putting flaps up after I landed. And that, to me, was the epitome of complacency. Mm-hmm. And that's a really good way to get hurt. Yeah. But imagine landing and don't, you know, I didn't oh, remember yeah. it. You're preoccupied with, with your brains already down the road somewhere else. And uh, yeah, that's, that's when you're going to forget something or you're going to react slowly uh, to something that needs to be reacted to. And uh, yeah. that'll bite you. Um, there's real consequences. Yeah. As much as I love doing this, uh, one of the things I'm always quick to point out to people is, you know, this is a risky activity and um, small, small incursions or small errors in judgment or uh, physical uh, uh, execution can be fatal. And uh, you can mm-hmm. never, never get too comfortable uh, and forget that. Yeah, totally. So going to the other spectrum and to end on a good note, what is your greatest memory of flying the Turbo Beaver uh, for the Canadian Ministry of Natural Resources in the Canadian bush? Uh, what, what uh, coming out of your 3,000 plus hours of doing so is your most fond memory of doing so? Well, this will seem strange, but uh, my best memory is not flying the Turbo Beaver. My best memory is on Lake of the Woods. I took a flight crew, I took a crew in, a fire crew in, and I had about an hour and a half to kill. I took off and I landed in the middle of the lake and shut the engine off. Now, my greatest memory comes from sitting, I got out of that aircraft, I climbed up on the roof, climbed up on the roof, the beautiful, clear, sunny day, hardly a whistle of wind, and I fell asleep on top of the roof of that turbo diesel. <laughs> Floating around, and I, as I was before, I was sleeping, and after, I was thinking, "My God, what a life! <laughs> what a speed and what a life!" There, my best memory is sleeping on the airplane on in, the roof. Ah, uh, there you go. I think that's a great memory, uh, and I wish more people would get to experience that. So, uh, uh, I, I mean, that's ultimately the the love. Of, of flying seaplanes and the access that we get to these remote areas and and these, you know, really special moments of unique peace 
that you can get out in the wilderness. And uh, it's something that we have unique access to because of flying flow planes into these areas. Yeah, I love it. It was a beautiful area to fly as well. And I had a great airplane, a job that I dreamed of all my life. And uh, I myself up there and it's a spotless airplane, by the way. It was absolutely clean. And uh, it was great. And people were paying me for that, Steve. <laughs> about that? It's amazing. Well, Robert, it has been an honor and a pleasure to sit down with you and share some of your experiences flying in the, the backcountry of Canada with the Turbo Beaver. Uh, I always enjoy your uh, articles in our magazine. I always look forward to them, and I hope they keep coming. I hope we have an opportunity to sit down again and to explore some of the other things you've done because you are a wealth of knowledge. Uh, You're very passionate and you're very good at communicating it. So uh, uh, thank you for joining us and uh, I hope we get to do it again soon. Well, I sure hope so. Call anytime. (laughs) Okay. Well, until next time, I hope you've enjoyed uh, getting a little bit of an idea of what it's like to fly uh, turbo beavers in the Canadian bush. We hope you've enjoyed it, this episode. Uh, please share uh, water flying with your friends. Uh, consider becoming a member of the Seaplane Pilots Association if you're not. And until then, one of the best ways that you can be a safe pilot is to fly often. So go out there and use seaplanes what they're meant to do. Uh, go out and explore, build your skills and uh, fly often. And that is going to make you a safer pilot. So Uh, You guys uh, stay tuned uh, for our next episode on Wednesday mornings, and uh, we'll see you again soon. We are so glad you joined us today. If you like today's show, I highly encourage you to join the Seaplane Pilots Association and become a member of the largest seaplane community in the world. Members receive water flying, the only full-color glossy magazine dedicated to the seaplane community. And it's available in both printed and digital form. Your membership also includes access to the Water Landing Directory app, which has the Seaplane Flight School directory and a calendar of seaplane events not only here in the United States, but around the world. The association hosts regular educational workshops, safety seminars, and gatherings for seaplane pilots and anyone with a passion for seaplanes. So look us up online at seaplanes.org, join our community, and support our mission of protecting and promoting water flying.